So last week, we got to know Jesus, and we got to know him through the story of his cousin, John. You might know him commonly as John the Baptist, John the Immerser, perhaps. But we learned that God had a specific calling on John's life. And it's actually a calling that we share, uh, to be waymakers for Jesus, uh, so that people can see the kingdom of God in their lives. And so what John did is he came to announce the arrival of the kingdom. And as a matter of fact, not just the kingdom, but the king himself was coming. And so we wrapped it up last week with this. Everything we say and do should hold open the curtain so that Jesus can step onto the stage. And so that idea that uh, we should be a light for him, but really we can't get it. We shouldn't get in the way of that light either, right? That we should be holding open the curtain to the stage so that he can step out there and people will see him in our lives. And if you missed that message or any of the messages in our Getting to Know Jesus series, uh, those are all on our website. Uh, the notes from the sermons are on there and everything. So I encourage you to go on there and check them out. And there's actually a little share button so you can share those with people that you think might be interested uh, in those as well. So the culmination of John's mission came when Jesus was baptized and God's Spirit rests on him. And this is where that happens in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What a moment that would have been. I mean, especially for John, I think, in that moment, as he sees right before his eyes, the long-awaited Messiah. And we know from the story that they at least knew of each other. But we don't know what's happened in this period of time where uh, they were first kind of hanging out in their mom's wombs in that little Holy Spirit meeting that they had. And if you don't know that story, you need to look at it because it's pretty cool. But um, we kind of fast forward to this time and God's spirit comes down and it rests on him. And this is definitely a moment of empowerment as the father delivers the full measure of his spirit onto his son, onto the Messiah in this moment. And he also gives Jesus his blessing or his approval for the ministry that's about to unfold. It's like an anointing. But there's a part of this, if you think about the human side of it for him, that may have been kind of overwhelming for him. Like, we don't know at what points, like, he knew what was complete. I mean, he, we know that he had some idea that he was on a mission and, and that that kind of gradually unfolded over time. But he was fully human, too. And so uh, this may have been kind of strange for him in this moment. Surprising and strange, and he may have been even uncertain how to respond to that. I mean, that would freak you out a little bit, right? If you were baptized in the tank up here, this is my son Jeff, in whom I'm well pleased. Like, that would just, you, it would freak you out a little bit, right? I mean, it would be cool, don't get me wrong, but it would also be a little strange. And so, um, he may have been trying to figure out, okay, well, what do I do with this exactly? And so, as we're getting to know him, we see that his path was one of obedience, and it was one of humility that was lived before God. And so we know that whatever he's going to do next, whatever he decides, it's going to be filtered through that mission of being obedient. But we also get the sense that aspects of God's calling on his life are being revealed along the way, right? Because he was a person just like me and just like you. And so just like in our lives, we don't get the full picture right at the very beginning. 
God doesn't say, oh, and by the way, I know that you're only seven, but you're going to grow up to be a mother and you're going to have three careers. And like, he doesn't do that, right? What he does is he unfolds that a little bit at a time because, frankly, if we knew what this looked like, it would freak us out. If we knew what this looked like, we might say no over here. We're not prepared for this. We're only prepared for this. And so we get these aspects of God's calling that's being revealed along the way to Jesus. And so we pick this up actually in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So after this moment, this amazing thing that happens, he's baptized. He hears from his father saying, this makes me happy. I am pleased in you. The next thing that happens is this. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And so often it's like after these highest spiritual moments that we have in our lives, it seems like right after that often comes the biggest test or the biggest trial. I mean, how many times, right, do you go maybe to, if you're a believer here, like you've gone to a conference, you've gone to a retreat, and you're like, ah, right, like you are like sailing high, and like everything that they said there, they like read your mail, they knew exactly what was going on. And God was like all over that place. Or maybe you leave this Bible study, and it's just rocked your world, and it's like, oh, just me and you, Jesus. I'm going to live forever, Right? I'm going to learn how to fly. Hey! Like you are just jazzed, like what's going on? Or maybe you experience like this amazing, engaging worship service where you feel the presence of the Lord and you step off that step at our warehouse and you float all the way home. Or maybe you just have a great day at work. You get the promotion. You get the recognition from your boss or... At school, you're recognized for your work, or you totally like ace a test. You're like, yes. Shelby says, yes, right? And then you walk through the door of your home and you step right into dog poop. It's true. True story. Or you get a flat tire or a speeding ticket. Because you're flying high, right? You know, you're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't drive through Clay Kama, folks. Or you show up at your house to be warmly greeted by your less enthusiastic family because they're looking at screens. I just wanted to tell you guys about this mountaintop experience that I had with God. Oh, I'm sorry, Minecraft. Never mind. And this little voice inside your head whispers, Did that really happen at church? Did you really hear from God? Or was Andrew just fire on the base this morning? A few weeks ago, Three people came right up here and made this declaration in their lives through baptism. Basically stating to the world and to God that they were going to take this stand and live their lives in a different way for Jesus. And how many of you know that right after you do something like that, 
That's when the enemy throws everything that he has at you. Guys, we face a real enemy, and it's not something we necessarily talk about a lot. Popular culture has diminished Satan to this, like, cute little imp, right? His little costume with his tail and his pitchfork. His little horns, right? And then next to that, you have all throughout history that humanism says things like, well, you know what? You just need to look into yourself. Bless you. The demons are all just inside of you. They're just your personal problems or the circumstances of your life or perhaps just your mistakes. It's all fine. And if we're our own adversaries, what need do we have, right, to seek anything other than ourselves? And then pride drives us to look inward for the answers as well. But that's a false search. The enemy that the scripture refers to here, the word that's used is devil, and it, it translates to a word which is Satan or the Satan in Hebrew, which simply means adversary. And throughout the Hebrew scriptures, it, it refers to things like enemies in warfare or a prosecuting attorney or uh, an opponent or an antagonist. And so, folks, we need to know who our enemy is. And scripture mentions our enemy all over the place. Uh, He has a lot of names, the devil, the adversary, the enemy, the tempter, the accuser, the destroyer. Uh, The Satan appears throughout the book of Job as the angel that's consigned to earth who brings accusations against human beings. He's the father of lies. He's the author of evil. He's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And death is his power. He's a schemer who is at work in the world bringing suffering, disease, and deformity. In John 10.10, Jesus himself gives us the enemy's mission statement. It's right here. He's referred to as the thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy always seeks to derail us early. After the baptism, after the mountaintop experience, after God does something amazing in our lives, he wants to stop us before we can get started and gain momentum. That's his goal. That's his mission. And so regardless of what we think of him or the world thinks of him, Jesus knows that the enemy is real. And as for me, I'm going to take the side of the guy who predicted his own death and resurrection. That's the side I'm going to be on. So Jesus is about to give us a Kung Fu masterclass in how to deal with the enemy. And this is pretty amazing. So this is described as the temptation of Jesus, but really it's more of a testing or a trial. He is tempted, and we're going to talk about that, but there's some other things going on here. And so uh, this actual story shows up in three different places in the Gospels. We have uh, Luke's version in chapter 4. Of course, we're going to be a Matthew's version mostly here in chapter 4. And then Mark mentions it in chapter 1 if you want to take a look at those later. So back to our verse. This is what we're, where we are. He's led into the wilderness, and he's going to be tempted And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Duh, right? That last line. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was fine. No, he was hungry. Of course he was. He was human. But just like you and me, when something happens in our life and God speaks or there's some amazing thing that like an unfolding of revelation, you kind of need time to sort that stuff out. You have to process it. You have to think, well, what are you really saying, God? And what does that look like? And what are the steps? And, and, and I, need some, 
I need some further clarification on this thing. So he needed space and time to sort out the implications of this message and the meaning of his destiny. He needed more revelation. And we see this pattern actually throughout Scripture where men and women of God uh, get away and oftentimes to the wilderness and oftentimes for 40 days, interestingly, to figure this stuff out. But we're not talking about a camping trip here because he doesn't pack anything. He just heads into the desert and his... uh, Assumption, which is a good one, is that God's going to sustain him and take care of him through this whole process. So he's led into the wastelands, and notice it says led by the Spirit, which I also think is interesting that he's being led into a situation that's going to be a hard situation. And that does happen in our lives as believers. So he's led into these wastelands west of the Jordan River near Jericho. This is a desolate, sun-baked Uh, dry and thirsty land. And so a man or woman without shade or water might die in a day. But he fasts, our master, 40 days and nights with no food in that desolate land. And guess what, guys? Spoiler alert for the end of the story. He's going to make it, okay? He's going to make it through this. Don't want you to worry. So there's only one explanation for his survival. Just like Moses and the other prophets, he is sustained by the Lord. The Lord is the thing that keeps him and takes care of him throughout this whole thing. And so that leads us to discuss one of the spiritual disciplines that we hit uh, this summer in a couple places, but solitude and prayer. Jesus knew something about this, and we're going to see it throughout his life, but there's a direct connection uh, between our personal faith and our private devotional life. So when it comes to things like prayer and getting alone with God, it's true that that connection between our faith and our private devotions, no matter how long you've been a believer or even if you're just starting, That's going to be true for the entire duration. As close as you are to God is where you're going to succeed. And the times that you're not close to him, you're not drawing near him, are the times that you're going to struggle. We have to make space for God to speak to us through his word and through answered prayer. Because our secret times with God are what sustain and fuel our faith. So if you feel like your tank's running a little empty today, it could be daylight savings time. It probably is. But if we're saying this in a spiritual manner, I guess, if you're a Christ follower here who doesn't spend time with God and you wonder, man, why is every, like, why do I fail at every trial or why is everything so hard or why do I constantly feel drained? You might consider that maybe what you're leaving out of that experience is actually, or ironically, the time that you need to spend with God. And so Jesus demonstrates this throughout his life. Um, He spent his life in prayer and study of the Torah, and it prepared him for this moment, as we're going to see, because that's part of the Kung Fu I mentioned earlier. So God longs for us to come to him and to depend on him for our spiritual needs. And so not just times when we're trucking into the wilderness by ourselves without food or water, right? He wants us to depend on him at all times for our needs. And so he, uh, and by the way, those needs could be emotional. They're, of course, spiritual needs, but even just a practical daily needs. And I can look around this room and see many of you guys who have been there with me and I've been there with you in times where there were practical needs in your life. Like uh, we didn't have groceries and God totally shows up on the scene and provides miraculously through other people. So all of those things uh, he can and will do for us. And um, all of those trials in those moments prepare us for what comes next. And so just like Jesus, he's being led into this situation of testing, and that happens for us too. And so he's led by the Spirit. And I want to talk here about testing or trials versus a temptation. It's not a matter of if 
but when trials will come. It's not a matter of if, but when. We're promised that trials will come. And we studied this back in our series on James, and that was in, uh, back in 2017. If you want to check that sermon out, it's actually online um, from October 8th, if you want to look into the whole thing. But James 1.13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does allow trials into our lives. And he can lead us, obviously, into situations where we will encounter trials to test us. That happens. We see it over and over again in Scripture, and we've seen it in our own lives. But trials are not temptation. God never desires for us to fall to temptation. That is not his desire for us. And because he is perfectly holy, God has nothing in his very nature that's even open to evil. We serve a good God. We sing about that this morning. By becoming fully human, Jesus was capable of being tempted. And I think that that's something we overlook and sometimes forget. But as we'll see, he never yielded to that temptation. Hebrews uh, 4.15 mentions this. But being tempted is not a sin. I want to be clear. Because even Jesus, right, he's tempted in these moments. These things that are about to manifest themselves and come up for him are real temptations. The sin occurs when we entertain and embrace the temptation. And that's an easy one for us to relate to because our culture a lot of times seems to celebrate destructive patterns, right? Something bad happens, and so the way that we deal with that is we make a poor choice. We choose to sin in moments where maybe things aren't going our way. But what we need to know is that sin is always a choice. When it comes to sin, it's always a choice. We have the capability to say yes, and we have the capability to say no in every instance that sin presents itself. 1 Corinthians says this in uh, chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We all face temptation. We have that. Every person in this room, anyone that can hear my voice, we have that in common. It may be by different things, but we all face temptation. And when we face morally confusing and seemingly impossible situations where we feel like there's no good choice, we should never think that we don't have another option because we always have an option other than sin. We are promised that there's always a way to remain obedient to the Lord. In every situation, when we're tempted, sometimes it's running away, frankly. Run away, right? But that's not what Jesus does in this situation. The Lord tests the righteous, Psalm 11.5, and even Jesus promised that we will have trials in John 16. So if you're here with us today and maybe you're not a believer, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad that you chose to be here with this us this morning. And sometimes we talk about things in church that really only apply to believers. Like some of the challenges that, I mean, I obviously I think that those are for everybody, but some of those things, it's kind of like you're off the hook. Like if you're not following Jesus and you're not chasing after him, then I'm not necessarily directly speaking to you in those moments. But this next promise is for everyone. We all face hard things in life that will test us. No matter where you are, if you're following Jesus or not, you're going to face hard stuff that's going to test you. And so 
as followers of Jesus, we believe that those testings and those trials are aspects of God's refinement for us. That he uses those moments to prepare us and to grow us for what he has next in our lives. And so with God's help and through his spirit and often the help of our brothers and sisters, right? And God's spirit through them. We can face it. You can face it and you can beat it. Like you can win. So the devil in this situation that we're about to talk about, he, what he wants to do is he wants to destroy God's plan. He wants to totally compromise Jesus. Uh, but the father uses the enemy's evil scheme for the good purpose of strengthening, actually, Jesus and his role, his messianic role that's unfolding. Basically, God takes all of this junk, like these arrows that the devil's just going, shoot, 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 like shooting at him, right? And he's... Like, he just takes all of those and he turns them all around to actually do the opposite of what the enemy was trying to do. He uses them to reinforce his resolve and his mission as the Messiah. It's pretty cool. So, we better get into it. Can't be here all day, right? So, the devil uses the same three tricks, guys, okay? His, his little bag of tricks is not endless. It may seem like it is, but they're really just the same three things over and over again. This all started, at least our picture of it, back in Genesis 3, 6. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three things that he uses. But the temptations that Jesus faced, they're real for him because they are uniquely related to his role as the Messiah. That's why they're real temptations. They're all related to challenging his identity. Are you really the Messiah? So we begin in Matthew 4, verse 3, with uh, the desires of the flesh. And the tempter came to him and said... If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, just because we're given details of only three instances of temptation, we have to know that he was being tempted all 40 of these days. But the example we have just culminates in these three examples. And so um, I envision this as like this constant sparring over the 40 days. You know, like if you ever saw the TV show Kung Fu where they would just show these scenic things where he's on the mountain, you know, and he's just kind of like, I don't know karate, so this is stupid. But, you know, he's like up there and he's just doing his thing. And it's just like 40 days of constant sparring with the enemy. And it culminates in these three massive temptations that would have been really hard for him to resist. Not to mention a lifetime prior to this that he's being tempted by the enemy, living in the same sandals that we do, right? Because you didn't just start being tempted, right, when you became a believer. It was happening long before that. Hey, Yeshua, you know what sounds really good right now? How about a loaf of sourdough bread? Hey, I hear the Messiah likes pretzels. 40 days of fasting, guys. Come on. I know you're hungry. If you're really the son of God, why don't you have a snack? Go on, make yourself something. I know over there at your church, you give the kids goldfish. (laughs) But what's cool about this is that Yeshua totally triumphs where the first man failed in Genesis. And he demonstrates what his brother James would later command us to do, which is to resist, right? Resist temptation. Nothing new under the sun, folks. 
he trusted the revelation that his father had given him. And so what he does is he actually quotes a passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy 8.3, a passage about how God tested the children of Israel in the desert. And then when they thought all hope was lost and they were starving, he provides for them in this miraculous way manna from heaven. Jesus didn't have anything to prove, especially to this punk, right? So what he does is he focuses on what God's already said, not what the tempter is saying. Rather than believing the words of the enemy, he believes the words that he'd already come out of his father's mouth, which was, this is my son, my beloved son, and I'm pleased in you. This is where we should start, believers. Anytime that negative voice in us starts to rise up and say, did you really hear that? Do you think you can really do that? This is my beloved son. This is my, we're sons and daughters of the king, guys. That's a title that we hold now if you're a believer in this room. Everything starts from there if we're going to have this discussion with the enemy. Jesus had nothing to prove. The second temptation was the desires of his eyes. And then the devil took him to the holy city or Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And because I know the Bible so well, right? The devil. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Next, Satan takes him to this highest point, right on this temple where he could look down and he could see people, the people that he came to save. And they're rushing to and fro, completely oblivious to this scene that's transpiring above them. Some rushing into the temple, some rushing out of the temple, just People doing what people do, living their lives. And this may seem like a weird temptation to us, right? Like, I've never been tempted to jump off of a high place, okay? Might as well jump! Right? No, that's a terrible idea. So, why is this a temptation for Jesus? And interestingly, Satan quotes scripture. Ooh, interesting. But the scripture that he actually quotes is from Psalm 91, and it reveals why this was the temptation. Satan proposes that Jesus could kickstart his ministry and instantly prove that he was the Messiah by jumping off of this tall place and floating down. Right? Look at me! People would be impressed by that. <laughs> I would. Like, he might be the Messiah. Did you see what he just did? I've never seen anyone do that. We're going to follow him for a while. Let's see what happens. Guys, remember, Satan is the inventor of the lie. And what he does here is he blatantly misuses the scripture in this effort to manipulate Jesus. But again, Jesus resists. And again, he quotes Deuteronomy. Here's the thing. If Jesus had given in to reveal his messianic identity in this moment, if he'd used his powers in this kind of a miracle in this moment, 
he would not have been able to fulfill his true mission, his true messianic destiny, which was suffering and death. The enemy's mission may be to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has accounted for that one too. Here's what he says. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But here's the thing about that. Only after his submission to suffering and death does Yeshua receive the immortal and untouchable status that Satan was urging him to try and seize in this moment. If he'd said yes, he wouldn't have the abundant life to give us. So undeterred, Satan gives it one more shot. And he saves perhaps his most tempting offer for the last. And this is the pride of life. Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So the third time, he doesn't even bother challenging his identity, right? He's like, okay, this isn't going to work. Let me try something else. What he does is he offers Jesus a shortcut to messianic success. And here's the thing that I'd never thought about until this time when I was reading through it. But if he's able to make this offer and it's able to actually tempt Jesus, then he must actually possess all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Or he would not be able to offer that and that would not be a temptation for Jesus. If it were just a lie, he'd call it out, right? So Jesus later refers to him in John 16 as the ruler of this world. And then John himself, who was one of the people very closest to Jesus in his lifetime, tells us that the world lies in the power of the evil one. So think about it this way. If Jesus yielded to this temptation, this third temptation, there's a few things here. He could have bypassed the cross. He could have bypassed the destruction of Jerusalem the desecration of the temple, the exile of Israel, and 2,000 years of Jewish suffering, if he just said yes in this moment. He could have brought the whole redemption to a quick conclusion if only he were willing to receive it from Satan. I'm really glad that he didn't. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So a third time, Jesus resists the devil, and again he quotes from Deuteronomy. Bottom line is this, God, guys. Jesus took no shortcuts when it came to redemption. Everything that unfolded in his life was a part of God's plan. And every time that he had the opportunity to, to, he said yes. He was obedient. He submitted in humility to what God wanted to do. All kingdoms will be his. But he's going to wait until he receives them from his father's hand. Because those kingdoms are lasting kingdoms. And sometimes we hear these stories and we're like, of course it was easy for Jesus to say no. I mean, he's Jesus, right? We talk about him at VBS. He's awesome. He had to know, right? He's he's mad, but he's God. Like it it should it was just easy for him. It's not easy for me. 
Scripture tells us that Jesus endured all the temptations common to human beings. Hebrews 2.18, he himself was tempted. Hebrews 4.15, he has been tempted in all things we are, and yet is without sin. He faced real temptations, guys, and real temptations imply the ability to give into that temptation. If they weren't real temptations for him, then they wouldn't have been tempting, basically. But there's something else that's even more interesting to me about this whole thing, and it's this. If these works, like these miraculous things that the enemy is challenging him to do, if these works were a temptation for him, then that means he would have actually been able to do those things. Right? Think about it. You can't tip me to turn this into a loaf of bread if I am not able to do that. Right? If these miraculous works were a temptation, that means as the chosen Messiah, the Son of God, in the full anointing of the Spirit, Jesus had the power to do these things. Turning rocks to bread, floating down from great heights, these things were possible for him. There's no question he was truly tempted, which means there's no question that he could actually do it. So even the temptations that he faced revealed his power and that he was truly the Messiah. I don't care who you are, that's cool and sneaky. The example of Jesus teaches us that we face off, guys, against a real enemy. But we don't have to fear that enemy. When we submit our lives to God, we can resist the devil and he will run. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. When we draw near to God when we turn from selfish living and we turn to follow Jesus, God will draw near to us. That's a promise. Back to that verse in James, resist, James 4, 7 and 8. Therefore, submit to God, right? So that's, this is, these are steps. Submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So how do we do that? Prayer. <laughs> We mentioned that at the beginning, digging into his word, spending time alone with God, seeking him. So the next time that you're tempted, especially tempted to sin, remember that there's always a way out and that God's desire for you in your mission is to strengthen you. And so even when tests and trials come, his goal in that, by allowing you to go through that, is to strengthen you and to draw you near to him. But if we're not spending time with God and connecting to him in prayer, being filled with his word, we're walking through enemy territory without weapons, guys. So may you and I be people that draw near to God and submit to him so that when we resist the enemy, he has no choice but to run. Would you bow your hearts with me? God, we love you. 
And I thank you um, for your son. And I thank you just for your word. And that when we dig into it, uh, we see uh, just that all the way along as your plan unfolded that you, I don't know, that your grace and your mercy were there the whole time. And that the example of your son submitting himself to unthinkable things on our behalf, God, so that we could know you and we could be called your sons and daughters is, I don't know, it's just a a blessing and a gift that none of us merit, but we're so thankful for. So, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would uh, uh, draw us. I pray, God, in the times that we face temptation, that you would strengthen us. Uh, For those of us that maybe aren't as close to you as we used to be or need to be. I pray that, um, I don't know, just that in your kindness that you would lead us to that repentance and draw us to you. We thank you for all you've done for us, God. We just ask that you go with us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Revolution never ends.